Well, for the second week in a row, we're going to be in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. So if you would, please go ahead and open your Bibles to that passage again. That's Matthew 18, 15 to 20. And before we begin, I'd like for us to read this passage together. So let's start there. Again, that's Matthew 18, 15 to 20. Jesus says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. There's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Uh, There's actually a story from the space race of the 1960s that I think helps illustrate this point. Of course, uh, as NASA tried to outdo the Soviets in the early stages of the space race, uh, they were faced with a lot of challenges that no one had ever faced before. Uh, That makes sense because space exploration was entirely new at this time, and so they were working in a a zero-G environment that no man had ever had to work in before, and they, they often, therefore, faced problems that required a whole new set of solutions or technologies than what had been developed up to that point. Well, it is said that one such problem was writing. NASA, of course, would need their astronauts to write occasionally in space. This was before laptop computers or iPads. Uh, The 1960s equivalent to an iPad was a clipboard and paper and a pen. Uh, The problem with that equation, though, is that pens don't write well in space, or at least they didn't at the time. The standard ballpoint pen, of course, requires gravity to pull the ink down to the ballpoint for it to work. That obviously isn't going to happen in a zero-g environment. Now, NASA still needed their astronauts to write in space, and so, the story goes, they spent a million dollars developing an ink pen that would write in space. The Soviets, it said, when they were faced with the same challenge, opted for a pencil. Now, that story is a little apocryphal. Uh, When you get digging, you discover that That's not entirely true, the way that that story told, but I think it illustrates the point. Knowledge is not the same thing as wisdom. It's one thing to know how to do something. It's another thing to know what to do. That's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. The one who has knowledge, they have all the right data, but the one who has wisdom knows how to apply it. Of course, the advantage to wisdom, and you know this if you've ever been exposed to to it, is that it's able to tackle entirely new scenarios, scenarios like, how do we write in space with competence? You've probably all had a mentor who embodied this concept for you at some point, like maybe it was a boss at work, or maybe it was a teacher in your field, and as you came across a particularly challenging problem on some project or skill that you had been working on, you you brought it to them, they looked at it for a moment or two, and then they just solved it, just like that. No challenge at all for them. It might have been a problem that, that, that they never even faced before, but they solved it effortlessly. And the reason why they were able to do this was because although they had never faced that particular problem before, over the course of years, through experience, they had faced a number of problems like it. And through that experience, they came to understand the principles that were in play with problems like the one that you were facing. And so when this new problem came up, even though they had never faced it before, they still understood how to get to the right answer. Experience had seasoned them so that they could go beyond knowing what the right answers were to understanding why they were right. That's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is able to recognize that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Wisdom, though, knows why this is so. It understands the principles that determine the solution. And that's why the one with wisdom is able to so easily adapt to new problems and scenarios. They understand the theory that produces the correct answers. One of my favorite examples of this 
concept is Wayne Gretzky. I grew up playing hockey, and so I, I idolized hockey players. And without a doubt, the greatest hockey player of all time is Wayne Gretzky. He is so good that he is known simply as the Great One. That's his nickname, the Great One, Wayne Gretzky. For some perspective, for just how Wayne Gretzky was, think of it like this. In hockey, there's a, there's a statistic called points, and that's a, a simple statistic determined by adding a player's goals plus their assists together. So if in a game a player scores one goal and then assists on two others, they have three points for the game. That's pretty simple. Well, how good was Wayne Gretzky? Well, not only is he the NHL's all-time leading goal scorer with 894 goals, that's 93 more than the guy in second place, but he's also the NHL's all-time leader in assists. In fact, he has more assists than any other player has points. Like, he would be the NHL's all-time points leader if you just counted his assists, but he's also the league's leader in goals as well. He was that good. He's the best hockey player who ever lived by far. And what's fascinating is that Gretzky was never the biggest guy or the fastest guy on the hockey rink. In fact, he was actually kind of scrawny. There have been many hockey players who have lived who are better athletes than Wayne Gretzky. But what set Gretzky apart was that he had simply uncanny vision. Like the man was born with a sixth sense for hockey. Players who played with him said that he could basically see every play unfold before it happened. He understood the principle of hockey that well. He understood it so well that even as nine other players moved around him at lightning speed, he could not only know where every other player was on the ice at all times, but he could predict where the puck would go and where everyone else would go in response to the puck. He could take all that in, calculate it, and then figure out what he needed to do next in an instant. That's what made Gretzky the great one. It wasn't that he knew the rules better than anyone else. It wasn't that he understood even the theories behind different offenses better than everyone else. There were other players who could have explained all those things as well as Wayne Gretzky. They possessed the same level of knowledge. But what made Gretzky different was that he understood the logic of hockey better than anyone else. At almost an instinctive level, he understood the theory of hockey well enough that in a moment he could tell what was going to happen on the rink before it ever occurred. And that allowed him to play the game essentially three seconds ahead of everyone else. That's why he was so great. In a sense, that's, it's that kind of thinking that we're going for here in Matthew 18, 15 to 20. As I explained in our first look at this passage last week, in these verses, Jesus explains how he wants his disciples to pursue one another when they fall into sin. This is why I've entitled these two messages, No Man Left Behind. In verses 1 to 16 of Matthew 8, or 1 to 6 of Matthew 18, Jesus answers his disciples' question about greatness by stating that all of his disciples are great in the kingdom of heaven. They're all loved and valued by God. Taking this concept in hand, he then tells his disciples in verses 12 to 14 that he wants them to pursue one another when they begin to go astray. Just as a shepherd with a hundred sheep will leave 99 sheep on the hillside to go in search of the one sheep that's gone astray, so also, Jesus says, it is not the will of his Father that any of his little ones should perish. And the implication there is that Jesus wants his disciples to pursue one another when they go astray. They matter that much to God. They're worth pursuing. So then now, here in verses 15 to 20, Jesus describes what that looks like. He explains what it means to leave no disciple behind Practically, the ensuing process of confrontation and restoration that he describes, it gives four basic steps, and it's commonly referred to in the church as church discipline. As I explained last week, that's, I don't think that's probably the best name for this process, and we'll continue to see why that is today, but that's still what most Christians call this process described here, church discipline. Now, what I said last week is that the way I want to approach our study of this process is by looking not so much at how the process should work as what this process is. That is to say, I don't want to simply look at the individual stages of the process and then ask, so what should happen at stage one, stage two, and then so on. Rather, what I want us to do is get a big picture view of these stages and see what they together accomplish. I want us to get a sense of this process. I want you to get a feel for the principles driving these steps. I want you to understand the theory of church discipline. And the reason why I want you to approach the passage this way, at least primarily, is because this process has been neglected by a lot of Christians. 
That's the main reason why I want to do this. A lot of Christians are are very hesitant about this process. I want to make it so that you're not hesitant about it. I want to make it so that that this is something that you're uh, enthused about. You understand the importance of it. That's the primary goal for this approach. But I also want you to understand that if you get a sense of what church discipline is broadly, then I think you're also going to get a better idea of how it works. That's part of the goal here as well. After all, if you look here, Jesus explains this process for how He wants restoration to occur, but, but this, this uh, explanation is, is clearly not exhaustive. And what I mean is that if you start trying to apply these steps to specific scenarios that you're likely to encounter in the church, what you'll quickly find is that Jesus' instructions don't cover all the specifics of these different scenarios that can happen. For example, suppose there's a woman who goes to your church, she's a friend of yours, and then she comes to you and she says that she just discovered that her husband, who attends a different church in town, is involved in an affair. Now you may say, well, she needs to talk to her husband, and if he doesn't listen, then I'll go with her, and we'll confront him together, and if he still doesn't listen, then we'll tell it to his church. But suppose that you do all that, and the church does nothing. What do you do then? You don't see the answer to that spelled out in detail here, do you? And that's just one example, but there are others as well. Jesus doesn't explicitly say what we should do in these types of scenarios. In fact, even some of the more straightforward scenarios, instances where you're dealing with people who you do know and who are a part of your church, even in those instances, the information can seem a little incomplete. For example, Jesus says that if we see a brother in sin, we confront them, and if they don't repent, then kick them out of the church. But we're all going to have sins in our life that we've repented of that we still struggle over, right? Like we all recognize that we're not sinless, don't we? And that doesn't mean that we're not repentant. I can see sin in my life that I'm repented of, meaning I hate it, I want it gone, and I'm fighting against it, but I just can't seem to shake it. Like, not all sin that the Scripture calls sin is what's called high-handed sin. Not all of it is premeditated, willful, deliberate sin. Some just spills out before we even know it, and then afterwards you already know the error that you've done, and you hate it. Like anger. I can hate my anger. I can, I can recognize that it's wrong, want to see it gone, But if you say the wrong thing to me, I'll get sinfully angry. And I might even try to control my anger in that moment, but you can still see that I'm angry as I try to control it. Is confrontation still supposed to happen then? Jesus doesn't explicitly tell us, does he? Now the implied answer, I think, would be no, but even then, how am I supposed to know whether or not my brother is repentant over his sin? Jesus doesn't give us that information. What about kids? Should kids be members of a church? It would seem like the answer to that should be yes. If we're understanding membership to mean that they're accepted as believers by a local body. So do you engage in church discipline if a child in the congregation keeps getting detentions at school for tardiness? Or for skipping class? Quite simply, do you ever see a scenario where you excommunicate a child? And before you say, well, they probably shouldn't be members of the church in the first place, understand that regardless of how you think official church membership intersects with a passage like this one, Jesus doesn't qualify these instructions. He doesn't say, if your brother sins against you, tell him his fault, unless he's a child, then, and give some alternate scenario. If you think children can exercise saving faith, then it would appear that the instructions here apply to them at some level. At what level do they apply? And where do you get your answer from? What about the new believer with a history of alcohol abuse who's struggling to overcome their addiction? How long would you take before you proceed to step four in this process? Would it be any longer than if an elder in your church were to suddenly begin getting drunk on the weekends? Do you hold the new believer to a different standard than the church elder? If so, again, where do you get your information from? Instinctively, I think we probably already know that there should be a different standard for these two men. But Jesus never explicitly says anything about a different standard, does he? So again, where does this come from? 
Now granted, some of the answers to these types of questions can come from other passages, but I also think that a lot of them can be found here just by thinking about the way that Jesus talks about church discipline. In other words, even though Jesus' instructions here aren't exhaustive, if you can get a feel for the principles that Jesus is spelling out here, then you can still get a sense of how he wants us to apply these steps in these different scenarios. You'll understand the theory of church discipline well enough that you'll know how to apply it even when the situations in front of you aren't textbook. That's one of my goals here as well, to give you a feel for the process that puts you three seconds ahead of the game. So the way that we're doing this is by looking at six different adjectives that describe church discipline. These are uh, six different adjectives that give us a sense of what church discipline is, what its goals are, what principles should govern it. We looked at three of these adjectives last week. Then we saw that church discipline is compassionate. Uh, That's one of the complaints about church discipline. A lot of people think it's very harsh. Last week we saw that this couldn't be further from the truth. Everything about this process, even the final step of excommunication, actually screams compassion. The whole point of this process is to keep wandering sheep from going astray. So this is a process that's done in love, undeniably. We also saw that church discipline is tenacious. Church discipline is a slow process. It's a process that requires a lot of patience, but it is also relentless. The one who practices church discipline does not easily quit. They are determined to win their brother. Finally, we saw that church discipline is peaceable. So it's tenacious, but it's also peaceable. It contends for the brother without being contentious. Today we're going to finish out this list for a total of six adjectives, six ways that we can describe church discipline. Let's go ahead and begin by looking at the fourth adjective. So church discipline is number one, compassionate. Number two, it's tenacious. Number three, it's peaceable. And number four, authoritative. Church discipline is authoritative. This point comes out in verses 18 to 20. After explaining the process of church discipline in verses 15 to 17, Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, what Jesus says here is an argument from greater to lesser. He says in verse 18, Truly I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And in context, that's a a statement about uh, church discipline. Uh, And I'm sorry, I read verse 19 there. Verse uh, 18 says, uh, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's what he says. And in context, that's a statement about church discipline. Again, Jesus is giving this extended response about greatness in the kingdom of heaven. And this starts all the way back in verse 2. He begins in verses 3 to 6 by explaining that Every one of his disciples is great in the kingdom of heaven. This leads him to then tell the disciples that they should not make any other disciples stumble in verses 7 to 10, and they should be diligent to pursue one another in verses 12 to 14. The process of restoration that Jesus explains is in verses 15 to 17. He says that every disciple is so precious in God's sight that he doesn't want to lose a single one. This means that disciples should pursue a wandering brother and sister Verses 15 to 17 describes what that looks like. Point being, when he starts talking about binding and loosing in verse 18, about God doing anything that his disciples ask in verse 19, he's not suddenly changing subjects and then speaking about the disciples' ability to perform miraculous signs and wonders or something like that. No, we're still on the subject of greatness in the kingdom of heaven. In particular, we're on the subject of church discipline. And what Jesus is doing here is explaining where the disciples' authority to perform this discipline process comes from. If you think about it, this fourth stage in verse 17, this stage that I think can properly be called church discipline, that stage is pretty bold. 
Overall, Jesus issues four steps for his disciples to follow in the pursuit of a wayward brother. In the first step, they're to confront their brother over sin privately. If their brother doesn't heed their counsel, then they're to go again with one or two witnesses and again discuss the brother's sin in private. If he still won't listen, then they go to step three, which is telling the church about his sin so that the church can collectively call that brother to repentance. And now if you notice what all these stages share in common is that there's simply an appeal. In other words, the only thing that happens in each of these stages is a call to repentance. Now, the people doing the call grows from one stage to the next, but other than that, these stages are essentially the same. They're an appeal made for the brother to repent of his sin. That doesn't seem like too big of a deal. The brother is entreated to change his actions, but that's it. That that feels kind of optional. Like he can just sort of choose to take these appeals or leave them. The fourth and final stage, though, is very different. Jesus says if the brother still will not listen, after even the church calls him to repentance, then, quote, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. He says, have nothing to do with them. In fact, even more than that, Jesus says, regard him as an unbeliever. That's big. Jesus says, if your brother won't listen to you, then regard him as an unbeliever. Essentially, he says, kick kick him out of the church, wash your hands of him entirely. The point is that this believer's testimony is no longer accepted as credible. He is to be treated, and listen closely here, this is where this fourth stage really has teeth. Jesus says he's to be treated as if he's still under the wrath of God. That's what this fourth stage is intended to communicate. That's where the teeth in it is. That's where it's supposed to call them to repentance. It's to call the brother to repentance by warning them that if they do not repent, then there is no reason to accept their testimony. There is no reason to be assured of their salvation. Indeed, there's actually every reason to believe that they're going to hell. That is pretty extreme. And so a common objection that comes up with reference to church discipline is Who do you think you are? I mean, who died and made you judge that now you can make authoritative declarations regarding someone else's salvation? And Jesus answers that objection right here by saying, I did. I died and made my church judge. I gave them this authority. It comes from me. If you recall back in Matthew 16, Jesus made a a similar statement to the one here in verse 18. In that instance, he said it to Peter. Peter had just declared that Jesus was the Christ in this deliberated and public confession of faith. And Jesus responds by saying that he will build his church on Peter's witness to this confession. Then he says, Matthew 16, verse 19. If you want to flip there, you can turn and kind of see it for yourself. He says to Peter then, Matthew 16, verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. If you recall, I said that with this statement, Jesus gave Peter, and by extension the rest of the apostles as well, the authority to declare what was and what was not permissible for the church. Now, I'm not going to try to rehash that whole argument right now, but I say this primarily because of the whatever in this statement. The whatever in this statement indicates that Jesus is referring to things. Things are being bound and loosed here, not people. There are some that think that Jesus is referring to people here, like he's saying that he gives first Peter and then the church the authority to declare what sins are or are not forgiven. That's not the way this is phrased in the Greek. The whatever here is neuter. It's not masculine or feminine. And this indicates, basically, that Jesus is referring to things, not people. It's whatever you bind or loose, not whoever. And again, by this, Jesus isn't giving his, uh, his disciples authority to do miraculous things. He does that in other passages. In fact, he, uh, makes, he made such a statement as recently as chapter 17. We saw that back with the healing of the demoniac boy. But while verse 19 touches on that kind of authority, that's not what he's saying in verse 18. In verse 18, Jesus is talking about making authoritative declarations about what is right and what is wrong. That's how these terms to bind 
and Toulouse were used in rabbinic literature. They were used for declaring what is and what is not permitted. Jesus gave Peter that authority back in chapter 16 after some extended lessons on the meaning of defilement. Peter's confession comes in the wake of the controversy surrounding those teachings. It indicated that he accepted Jesus' teaching. Jesus was therefore indicating to Peter not only that he would serve as the foundation to the church through his witness to the gospel, but that Peter, and again by extension the rest of the apostles, would also serve as the moral authority in the church. They would be the ones to communicate Jesus' teachings on righteousness to this new covenant community that he was establishing after the ratification of that new covenant on the cross. Jesus is giving a similar authority to the church at large here. Even after the apostles are gone, the church will be able to make authoritative declarations concerning sin and righteousness, concerning what is binding and what is not binding to the brother who is facing church discipline. So again, Jesus isn't giving the disciples authority to do miraculous things with this statement. The context, remember, is about pursuing lost sheep. It's not about prayer requests. Jesus is instructing where the authority to pursue sheep in this manner comes from. So where does the authority come from? You see the answer in verse 20. At the conclusion of this whole statement, Jesus says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Jesus is promising to be spiritually present with his disciples when they gather in his name. And this is where their authority comes from. Jesus is going to be spiritually present with his disciples, and with this presence, he will guide and shape their decisions about what is and what is not permissible. Jesus makes a similar statement regarding his presence with his disciples when he issues the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19-20. We read it for our call to worship this morning. There, after being raised from the dead, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold... I am with you always to the end of the age. So after Jesus receives authority from His Father, after His resurrection from the dead, He promises once again to be present with His disciples. And what's interesting about that is that He again makes this statement in the context of His disciples declaring His commands, making disciples. They are to make disciples of all the nations, quote, teaching them to do all that I commanded you, and He's promising to be present with them in this process. What you see here in Matthew 18 is just one aspect of this promise. This restoration process is one way that Jesus' followers are going to teach their disciples to do all that Jesus commanded them. And Jesus is promising to help them in that process by superintending the judgments regarding what is right and what is wrong. In short, the promise is something akin, and it's not the same thing, but it's something like inspiration. That's the significance of the passive verbs in verse 18. Jesus says that whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Those are what are called divine passives. And they indicate that there is a third party bringing about the result of those verbs, someone causing the binding and loosing to happen, and in this instance, that third party is God. The disciples will bind and loose on earth, and that binding or loosing is matched by God in heaven. And that doesn't mean that the disciples are commanding God. God isn't responding to them. Like, it's not as if they bind or loose, and then God responds to them by enforcing that standard that they made up. No, it's like what we saw back in chapter 16. These verbs aren't just passive, but they're in the perfect tense as well which indicates a past-completed action with present results. Point being, what the disciples will uh, declare will have already been done in heaven. That's actually the way the Holman Christian Standard Bible translates this statement. They say, it says, uh, whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. The New American Standard Version translates it this way. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. That's why I say that this promise is akin to inspiration. Jesus is telling His disciples that He will guide them so that what they declare binding or not binding 
will be a reflection of His Father's will in heaven. Now that's not revelatory inspiration, meaning Jesus is not giving His disciples authority to add or to take away from God's commands. And I say this because in verse 20, Jesus indicates that this kind of guidance occurs when two of His disciples gather quote, uh, in my name. So this is not a promise without condition. There are actually three conditions to the promise here, and that's one of them. There must be two or more disciples. They must agree, and then they must meet in His name. And by that, Jesus doesn't mean that simply so long as His disciples utter in Jesus' name, then God will honor their request. This is not the, the Christian equivalent to abracadabra or open sesame. Like if you just go... You know, God, please give me a new Lamborghini in Jesus' name. Amen. And then poof, there's a Lamborghini sitting in your driveway. That's not how this works, right? That's not what this means. No, to meet in Jesus' name means to meet, in a sense, as His disciples. It means to meet as His representatives. It means to meet under His authority. Jesus says that when His disciples meet with this attitude, when they come together, submitted to His authority and teaching, earnestly seeking to understand His will, to represent it on the earth as they discipline this brother, He will guide them. And this indicates that this is not a revelatory inspiration that's occurring. After all, if Jesus' disciples were coming together with this kind of attitude, then they're going to be turning to His Word, right? And they're going to be asking themselves, what did Jesus say? about this issue or that issue. They're going to search for what Jesus has already declared on the subject in question. But when they do this, Jesus is promising to guide them in their interpretation of His commands. And this matters, again, because the Scripture doesn't specifically cover many of the situations that Jesus' disciples face. It's like some of the examples that I brought up earlier this morning when I talked about the different scenarios to consider in church discipline. Not every single scenario is explicitly covered in the Scripture. But that doesn't mean that Jesus can't still guide us and help us understand from His Word what to do in those scenarios. Again, Jesus doesn't practically address how to handle a married couple that attends two different churches. He doesn't discuss how this process applies to children or the degree to which a believer's maturity may affect this process. And this isn't just true of church discipline. There are a lot of scenarios that the Bible doesn't specifically address. Again, doesn't address specifically, but it still addresses in principle. The Bible doesn't give an exhaustive list of what is and what is not permitted, but it is yet sufficient to determine what those things are. And what Jesus is saying here is that He's promising to guide the church in the interpretation of His commands. So that's the promise. Jesus is telling His disciples that He will guide them in the proper interpretation and application of the Scripture. The assurance for this promise comes in verse 19. This is where the greater to lesser argument comes in. In verse 18, Jesus tells the disciples that He will guide them in the interpretation of His commands. And then in verse 19, He roots this promise in God's love for His children as demonstrated in His willingness to hear Uh, their prayers and give them what they need. Jesus says, verse 19, Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, up to this point, we haven't touched too much on verse 19, and unfortunately, we don't have time to dig into this point too deeply, but suffice to say that this verse is about prayer requests. The two disciples in this passage are asking, they're bringing their request to God, and God says that when His disciples agree on this request, He will give them anything that they ask for. Now, as I explained back in Matthew 17, Jesus isn't giving His disciples a blank check when He makes statements like this. He's making a general statement, but this is not a statement without qualifications. For example, you're not going to be able to wish your sinful desires into existence If you can just find another believer to pray over it with you, right? The Scripture condones that. So again, praying in Jesus' name is not the Christian equivalent to abracadabra or open sesame. That's not what Jesus is saying here. No, Jesus is making a very broad, very general statement about prayer. And what He's saying is that His Father cares enough about His children that He will give them everything that they need. Again, that's the importance of this condition in my name in verse 20. Jesus is making it very clear that such prayers are submitted to His will and authority. He's not promising to give the disciples everything they want. He's promising to give them everything they need. 
But the emphasis in verse 19 is on the generosity of God's giving. That's the greater part of the greater to lesser argument. Jesus promises to guide his disciples in the discipline process. And how do they they know that God will do this? Well, it's because God will give his children everything they need when they ask for it. That's why Jesus doesn't qualify this statement in verse 19. It would only confuse the point, which is that that, that God will give his children everything they need because he loves them that much. And if he's going to give them everything they need because he loves them that much, well then most certainly he's going to help them when they seek his guidance in a process aimed at rescuing one of his little ones from sin. That's a no-brainer, right? I mean, of course God wants this process to be successful. Yeah, he'll help him. He'll help them. Why wouldn't he help them when he loves his children so much? So this is the basic idea communicated in verses 18 to 20. Jesus is promising to superintend the decisions made in the restoration process. God values every one of His children. And so when His children come to Him asking for guidance in the proper application of His commands, Jesus will be there among His body helping them to interpret the Scripture. In other words, once again, who died and made the church judge? Jesus did. When the church is working together in community, under the authority of God's Word, it has that authority. Because Jesus has promised to work in that body and guide it in its interpretation of Scripture. Essentially, when the church speaks, Jesus speaks. They have that kind of authority. Or at least they do when they seek His will with humility Dependence and faith. That's the fourth observation to make about this discipline process. It's authoritative. The fifth one is this. Humble. Humble. Church discipline is pursued with humility. Unfortunately, there's a lot to say here, but for time's sake, we're going to have to, I'm going to have to make this point pretty brief. Another common objection against church discipline is that it seems pretty arrogant. Again, the question that comes up is, who are you, or, or maybe even, who am I to tell someone else that they're in sin? That seems pretty judgmental. You have to be pretty arrogant to think that you can start passing judgments about someone else's spiritual condition. And, and this process is judgmental. And not just with reference to the definition of, of sins either, like it passes judgment on the other person's spiritual condition. After all, in the final stage, a person's testimony is publicly discredited. It is rejected. They're treated as if they're an unbeliever. That's passing judgment to the extreme. There's no two ways about that. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that this is done in arrogance. It isn't pride that brings this judgment about. In fact, when we look at this passage, we see that the one who pursues this process, at least when they pursue it according to the way that Jesus designed it, they pass judgment, but they do so in the utmost humility. We see this demonstrated in a few different ways. For example, as I pointed out just a moment ago, uh, the person who does this, does this under the authority of God. Jesus is the one who grants his church the authority to pass this judgment. No one simply assumes this authority. And of course, he expects them to pursue this entire process while under his authority. Again, that's demonstrated by the fact that they are to seek God's guidance in prayer in Jesus' name. It's worth noting, too, that the disciple who initiates this process does so in private first. There's no immediate public accusation of sin. I noted last week that this demonstrates both compassion and gentleness on the disciples' part. This isn't a disciple that's seeking a brawl. They're doing everything possible to be amiable in their attempts to win their brother. But I think it's also fair to say that this is a demonstration of humility. After all, a person who's humble is naturally going to seek out their brother privately first because they understand that they may be wrong. Maybe they're wrong about what they heard or saw the brother do. Maybe they're even wrong in their understanding of the Scripture. So they're going to go privately. There's no bravado here. The one who does this is obviously humble. And this is most clearly demonstrated by the fact that when the first appeal is rejected, they then come back with one or two witnesses to help mediate the dispute. And then when that fails, they go to the church. Do you understand? This is not one person standing in judgment over another. It's the entire Church collectively saying, Brother, you're in sin and you need to repent. 
I think this is why a lot of Christians hesitate to initiate this process. They think to themselves, who am I to tell my brother that he's in sin? I mean, what authority do I have in their life? And this is noble. That's an attitude that's born out of maturity. It's a sign of humility. And so the thing that you must understand, if you're going to have the fortitude to call a brother to repentance, which you must sometimes do if you love the body of Christ, you can't opt out of Matthew 18. You must do this. The thing you must understand, if you're going to have the will to do this, is that it's not just you that's doing it. Jesus has built a system of checks and balances into this process to prevent a misguided accusation from proceeding all the way to the final step. If you're wrong about your brother, do you know what's going to happen at stage two? Or if not at stage two, then stage three? Other Christians are going to say to you, what are you talking about? This brother's not in sin. You need to drop this and leave it alone. Can you see that? This this whole system presumes innocence. And it's only after the entire church is saying to this brother, you need to repent, and then he ignores that, that he's finally kicked out. I think it's fair to say that the one who's arrogant at that point isn't the one doing the confronting. It's the one being confronted. If the whole church is telling a brother, you're in sin, and then he thinks to himself, oh, what do they know? And then he he keeps going. He's the arrogant one, right? Not the one that initiated this process. The one who confronts ultimately has the witness of the entire church standing behind him, backing up his words, declaring that what he's saying to this brother about his sin is true. So this is not one brother arrogantly casting down judgment against another over his personal hang-ups or something like that. It is one brother earnestly appealing to another over a real concern. And then the entire church backing that brother or sister up, authenticating the weight of their appeal when it goes unheeded. And by the way, note that Jesus really demands that it happen this way. This promise of guidance, the promise that gives the confrontation here authority, this comes when two or three are gathered in Jesus' name. He's not promising this guidance to individuals. He's promising it to the entire church collectively. Yes, don't get me wrong, yes, the Spirit will aid Christians in the interpretation of Scripture, but Christians are obviously prone to rebellion and sin as well, right? So one Christian can make a mistake, clearly. But when you have 10 or 50 or 100 Christians agreeing that a brother's in sin, that's harder to chalk up to one man's shortcomings. Jesus is promising guidance in this way for this reason. So, And again, it's because this is the entire church doing this. No one man has the authority to do this. Sorry, Pope Francis, not a single man has the authority to excommunicate another. That would be arrogance. For one man to excommunicate another, that would be arrogance. But that's not what's happening here. This is the collective opinion of the church at work. And can you start to see, I hope you can see, just how beautiful this whole system is. Jesus has designed a process for His disciples to pursue one another, to help one another in their sin. That is at once tenacious in its love and yet patient. That is at once undeniably authoritative and yet humble. This is a way for the church to have and settle disputes while still maintaining complete and perfect unity. It's absolutely brilliant what Jesus commands here. It's brilliant and it's also incredibly personal. That's the sixth and final adjective. Church discipline is personal. Do you know what you don't see mentioned once in this passage? Look again at verses 15 to 17. Look again even at verses 18 to 20. What's missing from this passage that I think most of us would think really should be there? Do you give up? How about church leadership? At not one point does Jesus ever say anything about church leadership. He doesn't indicate that one of the witnesses in stage 2 should be an elder. He doesn't indicate that it's a pastor that's proclaiming a brother's sin to the congregation. The way it's presented here, a disciple could really just make this announcement themselves to a congregation so long as they've completed step 2. 
In fact, the you in verse 17 is singular, meaning that Jesus isn't even talking about corporate excommunication proper when he talks about regarding a brother as a Gentile or tax collector. It isn't the church that's to regard a brother in this way, according to verse 16. No, it's you. It's the one that's doing the confronting. You're to no longer regard that person as a brother. You look at the two or three that agree in verses 19 and 20, and in context, that would seem to be a reference to the witnesses that the disciple takes with him in stage two. Jesus is promising this divine guidance even before it gets to the point of bringing a brother's sin to the whole church. It doesn't take leadership for the call to repentance to be authoritative so long as everyone involved is submitted to the authority of Christ. And the reason for that, of course, is because Jesus ultimately is the authority in the church, not elders. So long as the interpretation of Scripture is accurate, the rebuke carries weight, even without the input of church leadership. So Jesus doesn't emphasize church leadership at all. And I don't think this is because Jesus necessarily believes church leadership shouldn't play a role in this process. I could argue from the rest of the New Testament that church leaders should be involved in this process, probably by step three, at the very least, most definitely by step four. But to discuss all of that here and now would go against Jesus' point, which is that he wants his disciples to understand that they are personally responsible for one another. Like, you don't, you don't have to delegate this responsibility to other people. Just sort of assume that if someone is in sin, then the leadership in the church will eventually find out about it and deal with it. No, if they see the brother in sin, Jesus says, they go and confront them. And then when he's disciplined, they personally regard him as a Gentile or tax collector. And I hope you understand this. This is is not just about church attendance. It's not like the the disciples are to say, well, they've been excommunicated, and so now we can just move past all that and keep being friends. We can still go to the football game next week and all of that. That's not what goes on here. That's not how church discipline works. Paul indicates in 1 Corinthians 5 that believers aren't even to eat with the person who are under this final step. It's a total cessation of fellowship, both inside and outside of the church. That requires that each individual disciple make the decision to regard a brother in this way personally. The point is, this is personal. Each individual Christian is to take up this task. And so Jesus doesn't want to talk about church leaders. He says, no, you do this. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, it's not just the pastor's job to do the work of the ministry. No, their role is to equip the saints by teaching and explaining God's words so that the saints... That is, each and every Christian, so that they can go and do the work of the ministry by speaking the truth to one another in love. I hope you understand this. The shepherding of the body is not just the role of the pastors. I know that's what the the title pastor means, shepherd. But from what Jesus says in verses 12 to 14 about the lost sheep, all of his disciples are, in a sense, pastors. They're all shepherds. Because he expects all of them to run after a sheep when it goes astray. Again, I hope you understand this. I hope you see yourself this way. It's not just my job to watch over Christ's flock or or Clint's. Yes, we possess that office in the church. We are in the office of overseer, the office of elder. And this means that when it comes down to the spiritual health of the flock, the buck ultimately stops with us. But at the same time, it kind of stops with you too. Absolutely no one in the church can say, it's not my job when it comes to pursuing a brother ensnared in sin. If you see a brother or sister ensnared in sin, it's your responsibility to run after them. If you love them, you must do it. And if you don't, and if they stumble and fall, then I think it's fair to say that one day you'll have to answer to Christ for that. The warning to watchmen in Ezekiel 33, that principle isn't just applicable to church leaders. It's applicable to every Christian because Jesus makes it the responsibility of every Christian to pursue the brother ensnared in sin. I really can't stress enough that you understand this point. You know, back in verses 12 to 14, Jesus talks about the shepherd leaving the 99 sheep to go and pursue the one. I have to tell you that as a pastor, the dilemma that I often face is that as I look out over the flock, it's not just one sheep that may be wandering, but two or three or four. And then I'm going to myself, how do I chase them all down? 
Like, do I, do I run and find other shepherds first? What do I do? I can't chase them all down at once. So do I pick the closest one? What do I do? And the answer to that is, it's not just the pastor's job. This is something we're to do together. And when we do it together, when we collectively make this our responsibility, then we can make light work of this. And we can be sure that not a single sheep goes astray. It's like I said a few weeks ago, it's kind of like when we're saved, God, God picks us up out of the mire of sin. He places us up on this tightrope hanging over a pit. And we're all on the rope together and the wind is howling around us and Satan and his minions are over on the side shaking the rope with doubts and fears. What Jesus says in Matthew 18 is that each disciple is so precious that not only does he not want one of his disciples to carelessly push or shove another one in order to make more room for themselves on the rope, but he actually wants them to hold on to one another. He wants them to do this so that when one disciple starts to lose his or her balance and begin to fall back down into the muck, there's another disciple there immediately to grab on, pull back, and keep him on the rope. Sanctification, growth, maturity, perseverance. This is a group effort. We all do this together. So the question that I have for you as we get ready to close today is this. Who do you have a grip on? Do you have a firm enough grip on another disciple that if they start to lose their balance, you can feel it? Who do you know well enough that if they start to go astray, you'll know it? Or for that matter, who has a grip on you? Who knows you well enough that they can do the same? If the answer to that question is no one, then you need to make some changes. Jesus expects you to take a personal interest in your fellow disciples. In a sense, you are your brother's keeper. But you obviously can't fulfill that responsibility if you don't know, and I mean like really know your fellow brothers or sisters well enough that you can tell when they're falling into sin. And and that works two ways. They can't pursue you if you don't let them know you well enough that they can tell when you're falling into sin. If you're always just kind of stiff-arming your brothers and sisters, never letting any of them really know what your struggles are, where you're weak, then they can't pursue you. They can try to get to know you, but at the same time, you have to let that happen. So who do you have a grip on? And who has a grip on you? Are you keeping watch over Christ's flock? Are you counting the sheep? Looking to see if there's any that are going astray? That's not just the job of pastors. Jesus expects all of His disciples to do this. In a sense, you are all pastors. Do you think of yourself in this way? As you keep a grip on those disciples close to you, do you still keep an eye out on the rest of the flock, constantly scanning, constantly looking for that lone disciple that you can pull into your huddle? If not, again, you need to. That's what Christ calls you to. So let's pray that Christ would help us rise to this challenge. As we've seen today, Jesus hasn't left us to merely struggle through this whole process alone. It it takes wisdom, it takes courage, it takes love, compassion to live with one another in this way. And Jesus hasn't left us to just kind of muster up all of that on our own. No, He's the one that supplies all of that. It's like we saw in our scripture reading today. He's the vine and we're the branches. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. So let's close by praying that Jesus would supply us with what we need to do this, and He would help us to live in this way. And of course, we can do this assured that He's promised us in this passage that when we do this, when we ask for these things, God will surely answer. So let's pray.